Have you ever been caught in a doubt storm? I presume you've been caught in a snowstorm. Maybe some of you have been caught in a dust storm or a sand storm. Uh, have you ever been caught in a doubt storm where just one doubt after another blows in around you? You begin to wonder, is this all real, this Christianity? What if life, what if this is as good as it gets? What if there is no life after death? What if none of this is true? How do I know my sins are forgiven? How do I know I'm going to heaven when I die? Maybe the doubts are, why would God love me? Why would God be interested in me at all? Or maybe the doubt is, I must be a constant source of disappointment to God. I'm such a failure. How could He love me at all? Doubt is the one great human certainty. Well, there are other great human certainties like sin. But because of sin, doubt is another great certainty. We don't know everything. Our minds are flawed. We focus on the the here and now. And we don't see the big picture. So we struggle with doubt. And for the Christian, doubt can be crippling. But God in his kindness has given us many passages and many verses and the Lord's table, and baptism, the sacraments, to strengthen our faith and to help us in times of doubt. And we're going to look at one of those verses this morning. John, 1 John 5, verse 13. We want to see three things. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on the third one, but we want to note, first of all, the possibility of assurance. The possibility of assurance, John says, and we're we're really going to look at the verse in reverse order. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. There's something very certain about these words. John wants us to know that we can both have eternal life and know that we have it. Now, Christians have struggled with this over the years, and at times, those who have professed to be Christians have even claimed that you can't have assurance. In the medieval church, they taught that you got to heaven, you found forgiveness by doing your best and performing religious rituals. And the reformers came along, and they could see that this wasn't what the Bible said. And John Calvin in particular, and Martin Luther, their great burden was to free people from the tyranny of doing and to see the richness of what Jesus had accomplished on the cross so that they could know it was done and that they could have peace with God and peace of mind. They could have assurance. Calvin's great pastoral burden was to see that people had assurance, that they knew from God's word that they themselves were right with God. The church responded uh, by setting up a council at a place called Trent uh, in northern Italy, and they set out their own statement on assurance. And let me read it to you. If anyone says that a man who has been born again and justified is bound by faith to believe that he is assuredly of the number of the predestined, unless he's learned it by special revelation, in other words, unless he had a special message from God to say it, 
Here's what they say. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Anyone who believes that they are rescued and saved by God and bound for heaven, if you believe that, let them be damned. was the church's response to the truth that the reformers rediscovered and that we're looking at this morning. Um, Pope Gregory in the 7th century had said that it's neither possible nor desirable to have assurance. And John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's very clear, isn't it? Eternal life is something you can have and know that you have it. And as we look through God's word, we find Job in Job 19 says, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. You say, well, that only proves life after death. That doesn't prove that Job had assurance of salvation. But he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and I'm going to see him. David says in Psalm 17, And when I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing his likeness. I say, well, that's only seeing God. That doesn't mean that David had assurance. Psalm 23, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We turn into the New Testament, and we've got John, and we've got Jude. And we'll look at Jude's verse this evening, but he speaks about to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless. Jude had assurance. Then uh, we've got Paul. Paul, the man who had tortured and murdered Christians, says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. He says in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Assurance is possible. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says in John 4, or John 5, 24, he says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not stand condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. John 6, the next chapter, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Eternal life isn't some future state of being. Eternal life is something that the believer has now. And John, or rather Jesus, says something wonderful in John 17, 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life isn't a state of being. Eternal life is to know God. And you can know God now. And therefore you can have eternal life now. It's not just a vague out there possibility. It's something for all God's people to have. What a kind God we have. What a Father we have. Who rather than having us live in doubt, well if you do this and do this and do enough, then maybe, just maybe I love you. Rather than having a father like that, we have a father who says, Come to me through my son, and I will love you no matter what. You will be secure because of my son. The possibility of assurance. Secondly, the 
people of assurance. I write these things to you who believe, so that you, there's something personal about this. It's not just a vague general truth. John wants his readers, and by extension, his readers in every time and every place, including us, to know that we have assurance, that we have eternal life. But he's particular. It's not just a blank check that covers everyone. It's very specific. It's you who believe. You who believe. And that the particular word that he uses here, he doesn't just say you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He actually butchers Greek grammar. He says you who believe, and he does it in, in different places, and Paul does it as well. You who believe into the name of the Son of God. You who believe into Christ. In John three sixteen, whoever believes into him will not perish. Because you see, the devil believes in God. The devil believes in Jesus. But he doesn't believe into him. He doesn't throw himself. Or as one writer puts it, this great phrase, he said... He doesn't, we're to fling ourselves into the merciful arms of God, believing he will catch. Isn't that faith? Is that what a child does? They just trust their, their father to catch and They just fling themselves. Sometimes their faith is greater than, the, than their ability to jump or the father's ability to catch and they just fling themselves anyway and there's a mad sprackle to, to catch them. They just believe. And so there's this movement of hurling ourselves by faith on Christ. And it is those who have believed into Christ that have this assurance. That's why Paul talks so much about the Christian as someone who's in Christ. You see, whenever you come to Jesus, you are, as it were, joined to him. Like a wife and a husband are joined. You are swallowed up in him, as it were, so that his righteousness becomes yours and your sin becomes his. And he can no more lose you than he can lose his divinity or he can lose his omnipotence or he can lose his knowledge for you are joined to Jesus. You are an in Christ person. You have believed into the name of the Son of God. And when you were baptized, you were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Their name was put on you as a reminder that you belong to them. You are in him. And if you're in him, you can have this certainty. So let me just ask, have you done this? Do you believe in Jesus? Or have you believed into Jesus? Anyone could believe in Jesus. As I said, Satan and the demons believe in Jesus. They're not running around going, oh, he doesn't exist. They know he exists. But they're not trusting him. They haven't entrusted their their salvation to him. They haven't entrusted themselves to him. Let me ask you this morning, have you entrusted yourself to Christ? I want to particularly ask the the young people. It's, It's easy to believe in Jesus. But have we believed in him have we entrusted ourselves to him have we said 
Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be the one who has rescued me. I want to entrust myself to you. Please take me and make me yours. The people of assurance. And if you're one of his, no matter what lies Satan tells you, no matter what truth he tells you, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the first two things. The the possibility of assurance and then the people who can have assurance. And I want all of us here to have assurance. And if that means for you this morning you still need to become a Christian, please do that today. There's nothing more important for you to do than to do that. Maybe to realize that, hang on a minute, all I've been doing is believing about Jesus. I believe all those things are true, but I've never actually taken that step of entrusting myself to him. Well, if that's what you need to do, do that this morning. And thirdly, that brings us to the proofs. The proofs of assurance. How can we know? How can we know? Well, it's not one proof, but our kind God has given us many And whenever John says, I write these things, we might wonder, which things is he speaking about? Is it verses 6 to 8 where he talks about there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood? And that might confuse you, and it's confused a lot of people. We'll look at that in a moment. Or it may be verses 1 to 8 where he sets out three tests and then the three witnesses. Might be that. I think it's the whole letter. These are the things that he has written, that we might have assurance. Because the whole point of the whole letter is that we can know. He uses the phrase, we know, or so that you may know, or you know, 28 times. There's one Greek word. And then there's another Greek word for know that occurs 13 times. And then he he talks about confidence. You see it there in verse uh, 14 of chapter 5. This is the confidence we have. But he's already spoken about confidence and boldness five other times. In the letter. And is it just that John is one of these ebullient optimists who sees the glass is half full when he doesn't even have a glass? You know, and he's just one of these ultra positive people. No, I don't think that's it. Because John believes that all these readers can have this confidence. One writer says, with John. The grounds for assurance are ethical, not emotional. They are objective, not subjective. They are plain and tangible, not microscopic and elusive. Now, what he means by that is sometimes we look for our assurance in our emotions. I feel a Christian today. I feel forgiven today. Great. I must be a Christian. Another day, we feel miserable, we feel convicted of our sin. No, I don't, I mustn't be a Christian because I don't feel like it. Well, John says, forget about the feelings. Let's look at truth. Well, what, what else um, does he say here? Well, it's, it's not subjective truth, it's objective, things that we can actually look at. And it's plain and tangible. 
things that can actually be touched and seen and heard rather than a thing that you need to bring out some sort of spiritual microscope and examine your life for traces of evidence that I'm a Christian. And so there are five great certainties set out in this letter. Places that we can go to for certainty. First of all, there's the certainty of history. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to John, uh, John chapter 5, I'm going to use just this little uh, New Testament here. That which was from the beginning, sorry, John, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. John's saying, although, you see, here's John, is the last eyewitness of Jesus, most likely. The last eyewitness of the resurrection. And he's saying to these people, I know this is real because I saw him. You didn't see him. You weren't there. But I was there and I want you to know that this is real. And I love what he says. Did you notice what he says? He says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. He says, I know this eternal life business is real because I saw it. In fact, not it, I saw him because this eternal life isn't a state of being. This eternal life is a person. His name is Jesus. He had been with the Father and then he came in the flesh and they touched him, they saw him, they heard him. John says, you want to know why I believe this is true? How I believe there's eternal life? I saw him. I heard eternal life speak. I know it's real. And there's a sort of imperious confidence about John. He says, we have fellowship with him. Our fellowship is with the Father and Son, Jesus, and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. He says, I, I, we've got this eternal life and fellowship with eternal life. We saw him. I was there. He says, I want you to know it too. The certainty that comes from history. In John 5, 6 uh, to 8, this, the witnesses, those three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. There are a lot of ideas about what that might mean, but I think in, in agreement with a lot of other uh, commentators, what it means is it's referring to the moment at the start of Jesus' ministry, it is baptism. That's the water. The blood is referring to the end of Jesus' ministry, as crucifixion. And the spirit is referring to all points in between. Because on the day of his baptism, the Spirit descends on the Son. And Jesus does all his miracles by the power of the Spirit. He preaches by the power of the Spirit. All the way through his, his ministry, the Spirit is bearing witness. Like he, he did about the prophets of old. The Spirit enabled them to speak and work miracles in a way that said, This is God's appointed messenger. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, from the moment of his baptism... To his death, the Spirit is saying, this is God's appointed Messiah. Hear him. In the Mount of Transfiguration, 
God says, this is my son. Hear him. And then we come to the cross. And again, here's this great historical moment. So you've got the ministry of Jesus is the evidence of history to the truth of all this. And you come to the cross, this great moment in history that you don't even need to read the Bible to find is an historical moment. And there's times Satan will come to you and he will cause you to wonder, is all this true? And John says, I was there. I saw it. I touched him. This is real. This is rooted in history. And the Lord's table that we come today anchors us to that very history. It's as if God's saying, you you weren't at the cross, but let me take you there to remember his body broken and his blood shed. And so when Satan comes to you and says, this is all made up, John says, come to me, come with me to the cross to find assurance that this is true. The second field of certainty is the certainty of forgiveness. Still in John 1, um, verses 9, and then on into John 2, verse 1, Satan comes to you and says, Ah, but you've done so much wrong. You've failed many times. How could you be forgiven? And John writes in 1 John uh, 1, 9, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. How simple. If we confess our sin. How powerful. He will purify us. How complete. From all unrighteousness. How wonderful. Ah, but you say in your mind, I keep on sinning. I keep on sinning. Is there any certainty for me? John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have an advocate, is the word that's used here. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Don't look at your sin. Listen to Jesus. He stands before his Father in heaven. Verse 7. But if we walk... In the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Here's certainty of a different kind. You might feel yourself plagued by particular sins that you've been struggling with or have struggled with, maybe even since our last communion. And you think, but what about this sin? This blood, this blood covers all your sin. You might think, ah, but, but some of my sins are particularly big. And John says in chapter 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Could you sin bigger than the whole world? You see the certainty John wants you to have? As we come to the Lord's table, we find that our certainty is anchored Our certainty about forgiveness is anchored here at the Lord's table. It reminds us of what has been done for us. We have to keep going. There's more certainty. What a kind father we have. Ah, but, you might say, or ah, but, Sid might whisper in your ear, but 
How could he love you? How could he love you? Look at you. You're a shambles as a believer. You can't even manage to follow faithfully for five minutes. How could you be accepted? John says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. What things, John? What things? Ah, behold, chapter 3, verse 1. What manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We're loved by the Father. We're redeemed by the Son. We're loved by the Father. We're loved by the Father. And here's where our union with Christ comes in. Because we are joined to Christ and, as it were, swallowed up by Him in a sense. Whenever Jesus says in John 17, 24, that, Father, I want them to know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. The Father looks at the Son and us joined to the Son. He says to His Son, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that applies to us too. We have been loved with an everlasting love. A love that had no beginning and no end. A love that is exactly the same as the love the Father has for His beloved Son because we are joined inextricably to His beloved Son. See why John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. In John 16, um, 26, Jesus says that He's going to ask the Father for something, but there's, there's something He's not going to ask the Father to do. And John Owen, a great Puritan theologian, writes this about this. He says, well, the, the verse goes on, No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And John Owen says this, Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father for many things. I'll ask him for the Spirit. I'll ask him to, to provide for you. I'll ask him, but there's one thing I will not ask the Father to do. And here's what John Owen says, But yet... In the point of love itself, free love, eternal love, there is no need of any asking for that. For eminently, the Father himself loves you. He said, I'm not going to ask him to love you. That's the one thing Jesus will never ask his Father to do. He'll ask that we will get, that we will understand how much the Father loves you. He'll never ask the Father to love you. The reason Jesus came was because the Father loved us. That was the catalyst for the whole thing. John Owen says this, Resolve that you may hold communion with him in it. In other words, you may relate to God in the certainty that he loves you. And be no more troubled about it. Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing it. The only way you'll burden the Father is to not believe his intense love for his people. Is that not incredible? Sometimes people find themselves with a father who doesn't express his appreciation or his esteem or his love. That is not the case here. 
We have a Father who delights in His children. There is a certainty to the Father's love. And this table, perhaps you're struggling this morning, and your lack of assurance stems from the fact that you're not sure that the Father loves you. Well, come to the table and look at this and hear the Father say, I give you my best. I give you my only Son because I love you. Hear Him say it. Take His Son in the bread and wine and say to yourself, Wow! How great is the Father's love that He has done this for me. Certainty because of the Father's love. Certainty in the fourth place because of the Spirit's work and witness. The whole Trinity is out to assure you that you are rescued and loved by this triune God. The Trinity bears total witness, or the Trinity in total bears witness to your salvation. Chapter 3, verse 24 We, this, this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Chapter 4, verse 13. And we know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. The Spirit witnesses and works. In Romans 8, Paul says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In Galatians Five, Paul talks about the work of the Spirit developing in us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, faithfulness, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit takes these objective facts and connects them and shows that they personally apply to us. Ah, but Satan says, how do you know This is true of you. Well, how do you pray? What happens when trouble comes into your life? Do you turn to God to pray? Well, there's an evidence that you're calling out to your Father. And how do you pray? Don't we often just launch in and say, Father, Father. Well, that crying out Father is proof that we're what? Children. That we think that we could come to God and call Him Father. And then we look at our lives and we start to see change and transformation. And we're seeing the work of the Spirit in us. We go, look, at I'm growing and changing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ah, but Satan says, <laughs> you're a million miles off the mark. John says, aye, but you're a million miles from where you started. The Holy Spirit's been working. Satan comes to us and he says, look, look at your failures and look at your shortcomings. And John says, look at the change. Look at the change that has happened in you. The Holy Spirit is witnessing and working to us. And as we come to the Lord, maybe even as I'm preaching this morning, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that this is true. And as you come to the Lord's table, the Spirit bears witness with your spirit. This Jesus died for me. His body was broken. His blood shed for me. This is, 
This, and as sure as I'm taking this bread and this wine to myself, I've taken Jesus to myself and I belong. The Spirit witnesses and works in us. And therefore we have certainty. And then fourth, fifthly, fifthly, there's the certainty of inner evidence. The certainty of inner evidence. John repeatedly throughout his letter sets out three tests. Three evidences that we have come to the Son, that we have been rescued, that we have been changed. He sets out, and these aren't subjective feelings. These are evidences of the Holy Spirit's handiwork. How do you know that you belong? Well, you can see the Holy Spirit has been doing some repair work in your life. And he sets out three tests. You can see them particularly set out in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. And I've given you references where you can explore the rest of them. Um, Sometimes it's good to have a little cheap paperback New Testament. If you want one of these, I've got a box of them. They're great for colouring in and highlighting and connecting things. And that's what I've been doing in 1 John, highlighting and colouring in um, the the evidence is the tests that John sets out. But look, John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. There's right belief. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That he is born of God? And all that goes out, have you believed into this? Well, why do you do that? You do that because God has changed you. The next test. And everyone... Who loves the Father loves his child as well. Now the child in this case is another Christian. Because the next verse says, this is how we know that we love the children of God. The next test is not just right belief, but right love for Christ's people. Do you, the collection of people here, other than Christianity, we have very little in common. And yet you look around, you do look at these people, these people matter to me. I care for these people. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know you care for each other because you show that concern for each other. Why is that? It's because God has been drawing you to each other because you're one in Christ's family. Mother Eleven, right love. The third one is right living. How do we know who the children of... This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands. Right living. You look at your life and you see that I love God's people. I believe what the Bible says and I'm wanting to live Christ's way. How did this happen? Well, God did it. Another writer says, They are a trinity, belief, righteousness, and love. By his belief in Christ, his keeping God's command, commands, and his love to the brothers, a Christian man is recognized and recognizes himself as begotten of God. We can look at these three things and think, well, God has been at work. God is here is objective evidence. And yes, Satan comes and says, Ah, but you don't love him as you should. You don't love that Christian over there as much as you love that one. That's true. We're flawed. But look at what God has been doing and is working at us and in us at. 
knows, yes, Satan might say, you're miles off the mark. And John says to us, yes, but you're miles from where you started. And as we come to the Lord's table, we apply this test to us. And we, we say, do I believe that this bread and wine represents the Son of God who died for me? Yes, I do. As I look at this bread and wine, our great tendency is to look at our sin, isn't it? Say, I'm no, not worthy to come to the Lord's table. Well, the fact that we see our sin is evidence that we want to live right and we come to the Lord's table and don't we want to commit ourselves to living for Jesus more and more? Well, there's proof, objective proof, that God is at work in us. As we come to the Lord's table and as we look around and we see others in the room taking part, we look at them and we say, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to be sitting together in heaven, eating and drinking together in the courts of God's own house. How fantastic is that? We find ourselves thinking this way as we sit at the Lord's table. There we are reminded afresh that we do belong, that God is at work in us. And John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know. As we come to the Lord's table, it's as if God adds a sixth that encompasses all those other five. And he says, I give this to you so that you may know that all this is rooted in history, that the whole of the Trinity is behind your salvation. And to know that in your own personal experience, God has been at work. God says, come to the table. Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. We have a God who is a kind Father who wants His children to know that they are accepted and forgiven. We have a God who is a kind Father who provides a shelter amidst the storms of doubt and the the storm cloud of, of arrows of doubt that Satan will unleash on us at times. We have a Father who says, to John, write that letter so that they may know that they have eternal life. If you're able, let me invite you to stand as we come to God in prayer. O oh Lord God, we are such fickle creatures who are slow of heart and slower of mind and brain. And we have very tiny minds, and we forget, and our eyes focus on the problems and not the promises. And yet in your glorious kindness, you have given us a whole book of promises. And then, because a whole book sometimes seems too much, you have given us a whole letter of rich assurance so that we can be encouraged to live the Christian life not out of doubt and fear, but out of the richness of your grace. We thank you. And then because we are so slow of mind and heart, you have given us not even a whole letter, but you have given us one simple sacrament that says to us, this happened for real in history that says to us that the Son has redeemed us, that says to us that the Father loves us, that says to us that the Spirit is working in us. 
and it says to us that this is true of me. That I believe in the Son. And because I believe in the Son, I have eternal life and have already crossed over from death to life. Father, I pray for your people today that you would take this truth and press it home into our hearts and minds so that we are filled with delight at this great assurance that is ours, not because we are special, not because we are super saints, but because you are a loving Father who delights in his children to have certainty. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.